And this is Paul speaking. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat or drink? Um, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does not he certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman or the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have, not made, or I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me um, of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if I do not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. Oh, sorry, sorry. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Just till there. Okay, well, 
I'm going to be honest with you, this is one of those chapters in the Bible. I, I don't think I've ever prepared for a sermon um, with this many ideas connected. Like, it's like pulling one piece of spaghetti and getting the whole bowl. Also, what's challenging is if maybe if I talk about the one thing, we might miss the beauty of the whole picture. And so sometimes I just want to say seven things. But So let's go through this. Okay. We saw freedom, rights, privileges, true strength, stewardship, your greatest aim in life. And of course, as Karno alluded to, money as well. All right. Now, in order to approach this text, here's my modus operandi. We're going to go through it section by section and then discuss it so that we can follow Paul's line um, of thinking. Um, and even though the sermon was titled something else, I would title the sermon now, All the More. All the more. And the reason for that is, throughout what we're going to be reading, there's going to be clear examples of where Paul's going to be arguing from a lesser to a greater, or of a less significant to the more significant, or of the less important to the, we should absolutely. All right, so let's keep an eye out for that. So let's start. Verse 1 to verse 7. It starts with, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And it ends there with, or oh, who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So I want to advise you to maybe follow along with your, your Bibles with you. First of all, where are we? Paul is on trial. He is using courtly language. He's using terms like defense. Okay. And what is he defending? He's defending the fact that he is, in fact, an apostle. So what we are going to be seeing throughout this sermon is there is an attack on his identity and he's going to respond through his deeds. Okay, so identity followed by deeds. And the attack is like they don't think he's a real apostle. But this is a, a little bit awkward. Okay, so just imagine Hilda's, let's say, three years older and she were to tell me, Hanyu, you're not a father. That's basically what's going on here. And it seems so strange because Paul planted this church. He, an apostle means to be sent out, right? He was sent out on a missionary trip and he planted this church to, the, to Corinth. But they are claiming he can't be an apostle. So why not? Well, in verse 1, or between verse 1 and verse 7, we see him defending two ideas. First of all, he didn't take a wife. And second of all, he didn't accept um, support from them. So the accusation is, oh, wait, you're single and you're not taking support from us. Well, all the other apostles are married and they take support and they're apostles, so... What's you can't be an apostle then? Now, throughout, remember the all the more thing, okay? Paul is basically going to agree with their premises and he's going to disagree vehemently with their conclusions each time. All right. Now, of course, Paul responds and he's going to be responding from two angles. So, the first half of his defense is common sense. 
He says, well, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Well, of course they have the right to take things. I agree with you, absolutely. He uses these rhetorical questions to make a point. When you work, you ought to be compensated for it, fairly. It makes sense, right? No. Let's go on to the next section, verse 8 to verse 12. So, do I say this on human authority? Does not even the law say the same? Paul starts by moving from common sense to the Bible, from general revelation to specific revelation. And he quotes the law in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, about an ox. Isn't that weird? Now, like I said, all the more, right? The law is, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, in context, um, if you had to get grain, there was this milestone, a big stone, and you would attach it to a bull thingy, cow, right? You would attach it, right? And then the cow would go around in circles, and you would throw the stuff in, and grain would come out. But it, it's tiring rolling a stone around, and so the poor thing would want to eat. And so it would walk and eat the food that it's getting. And so the farmer wouldn't want that. I mean, he doesn't want all his food gone. So they would put a muzzle in and strain the ox from eating as it's working. And so the law was put there for the benefit of even the animals. So at this point, I just want to stop and say, look, the law is good for us. We're sinful. We don't like it when the law accuses us. But the laws, like even the laws about animals, are for us. God wrote this law for our benefit. It's a beautiful thing. And like John Calvin pointed out, it's from the lesser to the greater. If it's even for an ox, how much more for a person? God cares for a person. It sounds a lot like someone who said, consider the sparrows, how much he cares for them. Same thing. The law is good for us. Once again, Paul agrees with the premises. He does not accept their conclusion. So, huh. just because you have a right doesn't mean that you have to use it. And that was the mistake, the conclusion that the Corinthians made. So Paul had the right to make use of his uh, offerings, but he didn't. He chose to use his freedom for something else. This wasn't always the case. In Philippians 4, we see that he thanks them for the gift that he got through Epaphrodites. Sometimes Paul did use his um, gifts, but not always. Let's go on to the third offense, the temple and the altar, verse 13 to verse 15. And here I want us to read along, really. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these, to, these things to secure any such provisions. Okay. So, hmm, I want to... Uh, clear the air, or be perfectly transparent, or whatever. There's a reason why I'm doing the sermon and not Johan, because um, we're going to start talking about money. 
and finances, right? <laughs> but I have to be clear two ways. So on my end, I am not getting paid for talking to you guys. I never get paid for talking to people, <laughs> except at work, but that's different. But my wife works here, and so in a sense, this might, what I'm going to say now, influence me indirectly, though I'm not being paid. Or, okay. What I'm going to say, I have prayed a lot about, and I want to make sure that whatever I say, it could be anyone saying it, and it should still be true. So that's my aim. Okay. That's my side. On your end, churches and different church backgrounds usually cause people having some baggage around money. So I want to get that out. Sometimes people feel guilt. Other times people feel angry. Other times people feel just, you know, apathetic. They might have felt exploited or sit with pain around money. So I want to be aware of that. I want to acknowledge that, especially with things like the prosperity gospel or very legalistic settings. But the first time in the Bible where we see people giving something to God, there were two brothers, and the one gave a good, good and a right sacrifice, and the other brother murdered him because of the jealousy that rose up in his heart. That's the first time we see people giving to God. I was just struck thinking about that because I just realized this thing is a very sneaky idol in our hearts, and greed can be a nasty thing. So we have to be very careful. Jesus spoke more about money than most other topics, and there's a reason for it. So for you, from your end, whatever your background is, please let's try to approach this with fresh ears. Okay. Now, I've read the text. Let's dive into this. A bit of background. Paul has quoted um, the Old Testament and the sacrificial system to make sense of their situation in Corinth. So how did it work? Of the 12 tribes in the Old Testament, we see this in Numbers 18, um, one tribe, the priestly tribe, Levi, did not get any land. Here's the catch. It's middle to late Bronze Age. We're dealing with an agrarian society. If you don't farm, you don't eat. If you don't plant, you don't eat. If you don't have enough livestock, you die. That's how it works. And so this one tribe doesn't have enough capacity to care for themselves so that they should be able to survive. It's a twelfth of the population if it were distributed equally. So, how did it work? God compensated for that fact that if people brought sacrificial offerings or guilt offerings, that is to say, out of overflow of your heart or out of a realization of the guilt that you have done, you brought an offering to be offered at the altar, the priests working it could share in the, the offering that was received. So you had access to, um, to food that way. It wasn't only the altar. It wasn't only the dirty work. It was also the work in the temple, making sure that the bread is at its place, that the, the bowl has its water, that the oil is filled. Working in the holy presence of God, those people lived by the offerings that the people brought. That's the basis for it. 
So, back to what Paul says here. He says, in the same way, the people who worked in the altar and the people who worked in the temple got their offering, so people who work in the gospel. The point is, should we be taking care of our pastors? Yes, absolutely, in the same way. Especially because he equivocates the, the altar and the temple the dirty work, and the exalted work. But how much do you ask? Okay. Enough. <laughs> the Bible is strikingly unclear about this. Enough. Enough so that they don't need side hustles to survive and that they don't have to become stinking rich. Scripture, or Paul writes the following in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 to 18. You guys can go check it out in the Bible with us. Elders who provide effective leadership must be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard in speaking and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the worker deserves his pay. Brothers and sisters, as far as it's possible, we should support our staff. Okay, but, but seriously, how much do you ask? <laughs> Let's paint a big picture just quickly, so that we can understand this giving. And the reason I want to do this, especially, is because we are, instead of thinking in um, biblical terms, we are trained to think in consuming terms, uh, a user consuming, taking and giving. And I'm not sure that's what the Bible gives us. The Bible starts out with God creating everything, every, everything, everything that you've ever seen, God, God created that. Okay. Do you ultimately own anything? Well, I mean, no. It's quite silly. You've been entrusted to a few things, now haven't you? Right. But in the Old Testament, we see a few things. We see people giving tithes. Now, the word tithe refers to a tenth. Um, it's, it's, it's part of the giving of the rituals. We see special sacrifices being given. You can give a wave offering. You can... Out of thankfulness, you can bring, bring your offering to God. You had the offering of first fruits. That's the first produce that you received. You brought it. But if uh, you had to follow all of these laws down to the letter, you would be practically giving more than 30% of your income uh, if you had to follow a law for 613 laws. The New Testament has this very colorful way of not only fulfilling, but culminating everything through Jesus. So everything reaches its true expression through the reflection of Christ. And what we see there is not a percentage, it's a fulfillment. And so I want to make the case that tithing itself did not carry over, but rather that we should care carried over. Okay. So let's do a quick tour through the New Testament and through the Bible. I want to take us through six principles around giving. And for the first one, I want us to read together. Open up in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 to 8. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 to 8. Paul says the following. My point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. 
Each one of you should give just as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace overflow to you, so that because you have enough of everything, in every way, at all times, you will overflow in every good work. Friends, the first principle is that the focus is on having a generous heart, that whatever we give, we should give cheerfully. And I think that's the heart of the message that we receive from the New Testament. Okay. But this isn't the full picture. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 to 19. Listen to how Paul instructs the wealthy. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this world's goods not to be haughty or to set their hopes on riches, which are uncertain, but on God who richly provides for us all things for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous givers, sharing with others. In this way, they will save up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the future and so lay hold of what is truly life. Right, so for the wealthy, give freely. Third principle that we see is the one that we just read in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 9 to 11, also 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 to 18, and that is that people who live by the gospel should get their compensation from the gospel. We saw this from common sense, from the law, and from the direct example of what carried over from the Old Testament. Fourth, giving is an act of obedience out of faith in the God who provides. In Philippians 4, verse 17 to 19, we read, I do not say this because I am seeking a gift. Rather, I seek the credit that abounds to your account. For I have received everything, and I have plenty. I have all I need because I have received uh, from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, very pleasing to God. And my God will supply your every need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. It's an act of obedience. Number five, if you are struggling with greed, Proverbs 30, verse 7 to 9 says this. It's Agur speaking. What a great name, Agur. Two things I ask from you. He's speaking to God. Do not refuse me before I die. Remove falsehood and lies from me. Do not give me poverty or riches. Feed me with my allotted portion of bread lest I become satisfied and act deceptively and say, Who is, is this Lord? Or lest I become poor and steal and demean the name of my God. Friends, greed is really deceptive. When we have too much, we tend to give less. Because there's always that extra thing that we can give. When we don't have enough, we tend to become better. And think, oh, God isn't providing enough for us. We have to watch out. The sixth principle is the following. In an agrarian society, it would be appropriate to give from your produce. Now, we are so used to thinking in terms of money, but giving may look differently. If you have extra vegetables or fruit in your garden or anything else, it's appropriate. So let's apply this to our lives now. If you don't know how much to give, maybe start off with a tithing concept. Start off with a 10%. The advantage is it scales really well. Let's say you have a thousand rand, 
it's 100. If you have 10,000 Rand, it's 1,000. Now, even though I've said that, please don't bind your conscience to that. Don't say, oh, I can't even give God 10% because I can't even pay for the food I have. But maybe start there. A second application point is give until it hurts. Give till the point that you don't have something you really want or want to do or want to go to so that you can remember that what I'm giving here is I'm giving up so that someone else can give. Thirdly, give to your local church first. Charity starts at home. In Ephesians 4 or 5, I think it's 4, we see that the, we have been plundered out of the kingdom of darkness and given into the kingdom of light. In a sense, we already are gifts. We're each other's gifts to each other. Start here. If this is your place of worship, I see we have a few guests. Charity starts at your home. Um, you know, rather first give to your local church before giving Yorkies for life, you know. Even though Yorkies have their place in life, um, that's it. All right, good practices around giving. If your income increases and you have more than enough, let your contribution increase all the more. Secondly, give the moment you receive your salary. Friends, it's so much easier just giving the salary or giving the money out as you get it in. It's much easier on the first day than it is on the last day. What that does is it, it, it helps us become obedient. Thirdly, be faithful in giving, especially if you have little. Jesus keeps on pointing and hammering this in, and he often uses the idea of money. One coin, 10 coins, 100 coins. If you have one coin or two coins and you give one, your reward is far more than having 100 and giving 20. The second thing that happens is when you are faithful and little, God tends to give you more. That's the whole principle of stewardship that Jesus doesn't stop talking about. Fourthly, pray for your church that they should steward the finances well. Please pray for this church. Pray that Johan, Gyor, Anna, that these gents who are faithfully here every week are faithful with what's given to them. And then fifthly, don't presuppose that your pastors must be poor in order to be spiritually mature. Conversely, if you see someone successful, don't assume they're spiritually mature. This is not a matter of finances. This is a matter of the heart. Okay, so what if you can't give? What if you say, I'm living on the breadline. I really can't give. As I pointed out, the New Testament shows us that it culminates. In Romans 12, verse 2, we see that we should give our bodies as a living sacrifice. If you don't have money, we need people to help making coffee, setting up the venue, serving with a technical team, singing. Please, we need people. If you have a voice, Oh, amen. There's so many different ways in which you can serve. Please, just bring what you have. In summary, Matthew Henry, the 
famous commenter of the Bible, said the following, it is the, duty, it is the people's duty to maintain their minister by Christ's appointment, though it, not, although it be not a duty bound on every minister to call for or accept it. He may waive his right, as Paul did, without being a sinner, but those transgress an appointment of Christ who deny or withhold it. <sighs> Finances, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what I have there. Let's go on. Turn with me to verse 15 to verse 18. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground of boasting. For if I preach the gospel, this gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Now, Peter knew Paul. He knew him well. And he had this to say about Paul. Sometimes the sayings of Paul are hard to understand. <laughs> he was being very nice. What's up with all this boasting? What is that? Isn't it sinful to boast? Shouldn't we be humble? To understand Paul and his boasting, we should just know what he boasts about. Now let's hear the man speak for himself. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And again, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 to 10. But he said to me, that's God, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is showing us what strength means. He can never boast on his own strength. He can only boast on Christ's strengths in him. Because when he is weak, he is strong. Friends, is there an area in your life that you are struggling with? Do the following. Tell the people around you that you are struggling in it. Bring it out in the open. Start praying and really relying on God. Knowing that you can't do this on your own. Boast in your weakness because it is then when Christ's strength really shines through. The areas in your life that you've struggled along the most with are the areas that God will use you the most with. That's just how it works. Holiness is a matter of giving over to God, and that's what Paul is showing. Now, the reason he's boasting is very, like I said, difficult to understand. He seems to be saying that even though it is normative that we should take care of pastors, he finds it good that the gospel should be given freely. And I think it's important to recognize how Paul was saved. He was murdering Christians. He was on a murderous rampage on his way to go murder Christians when Jesus intervened, right? And then he saw Jesus, and then Jesus spoke to him, and he was blinded. It's kind of a life-changing event, right? Jesus told him, look, you're going to pay for what you've done, but I need you to go to the Gentiles. 
Paul realizes one thing. He's not free. He is someone else's. He is a slave. It, it's his duty to share the gospel. He is using his freedom, though, to make it as openly accessible as possible. And this is where freedom and rights really start to shine. Friends, you're all a slave. You're, you're enslaved to something, whether you like it or not. The freest you can possibly be is to be a slave to Christ because that means freedom. It means that you can be free to be who you really are. Anything else will bind you in a way that will lead you to your own destruction. The question is what we do with our freedom and with our rights. On that note, let's go on to the next section, verse 19 to verse 23. Now, before I read this, I want to re remind you, Paul's identity was attacked, and he started showing us through his deeds that he is who he is, right? Listen to this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Now, I'm not going to read this whole section because it's long-winded. He talks about the Jews, those under the law, those outside the law. And he keeps on jumping in with this thing about, oh, not under the law, not outside the law. I'm under the law of Christ. So what's up here? The thing is, it seems like Paul is being a social chameleon. Right? Sometimes he's a Jew, sometimes not. Sometimes he's free. Huh. Now, I want to share with you this experience I had um, at university. There was this guy. I really hope he doesn't ever listen to this sermon, but I, I won't mention his name. Um, he, whenever you asked him a question, I'm not making this up, he would try to give you the right answer. It felt like listening to a Miss America constant, or a contestant that always had to end with world peace, right? But it got to the point where I wanted to smack him in the face every time I saw him. Because the reason is, if I asked him something, he just said things that I, he thought I'd want to hear. And in the process, I have no idea who he is. I have no idea what his ideas are, what's important to him. And time went on, like I think two years later, I had the opportunity to you know, talk to him about it. I was like, man, you know, I find it kind of frustrating that I can't get a clear answer out of you. And he mentioned, look, he struggles socially, and so he thinks that by saying the right things, he would look good. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's not the case here. In fact, I want to say the exact opposite. Consider how Paul got saved. I mean, he was zealous. This guy is the most, one of the most intelligent people who ever lived, one of the most educated people who ever lived, one of the most zealous people who ever lived. And he actually saw the living Christ. He knows exactly who he is in Christ. The shocking idea that he is loved by God, who is Jesus, that transformed his entire life. Now, we all have identity markers. I am a man. I am an Afrikaner. I am a, a father. I'm a South African. Uh, I'm white. And we are in, in environments that like to hook things to us, and as we develop, more of these identity markers arise, right? At least, I'm not a crossfitter, but, yeah. Skis je litwe, I'm But what's happening here is because, because Paul so clearly understands 
his central identity. That is, he is sold out to Christ. He is loved. He is truly united with the God who saved him. He can easily pour out his other identity markers. He is a Jew. He can live as one who is under the law. He is free to do that. And this, friends, is where I want us to start building on the picture that Paul has been alluding to the whole time. You see, as Louise so accurately identified, all this that we've gone through started off last week with Anna's sermon about a question over meat. I mean, have you ever sat around a braai looking into the flames? And when you find yourself again, you're talking about what's important to life. What's your destiny? Where you headed? What you are willing to fight for or die for? That's what's going on here in a metaphorical sense. But notice what Paul is doing. He's building up a three-tier argument all the way. Because the situation that the Corinthians provided was the following. They said, well, we're spiritually free. We know that these gods aren't really there. We can eat the meat. They say, we are free, we are strong, we can do what we want. Paul says, yeah, I agree with your premises, but look at my life. What Paul is saying is, what are you doing with your freedom? What he's doing is saying, oh, I'm free, I am strong in Christ. I am going to give that up. For those around me. That is what Paul does. And he does it sometimes. What we can lose out here is that saying, using your freedom to give up your rights, that's half of the picture. Because the fact is, Paul has been looking to someone else the whole time. He's looking to what Jesus did for us. So, Jesus, most powerful person ever lived, the freest person who ever lived, the strongest person who ever lived, the most wonderful person who ever lived, omniscient, all-knowing. Listen to what he says about Jesus in Philippians 2, verse 5 to 8. I always quote this. Forgive me. It's the Carmen Christi. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you see how Paul has been going all the more? Oh, you think that's what it means to be strong, to use your freedom? No, give it up. Oh, but all the more, look at what Christ gave up for us. That's why Paul, in a very similar line of thinking, tells us in Romans 15, verse 1 to verse 4 or to 3, he tells us this, but we who are strong ought to bear the, the failings of the weak and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor and his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. 
Every insult was taken on Jesus. Every weakness was taken on Jesus. Every sin, every bad thing, every bit of evil. The Bible shows us that He became poor so that we can become rich. Let's end this off with verse 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Like I said, we started with this attack on his identity and we've gone over to his deeds. And Paul is telling us, guys, all the more. He tells us he will not give up. He will not end up till the end. He will pursue virtue for the single thing driving him. And he focuses on two things. Self-control. Is there something valuable to you that you would sacrifice for? That you might wake up a bit earlier for? Something that many of us have had the privilege of doing is studying. Consider all the preparation for those tests that you had. Think about all the practicals you had to do. Think about those times you had to stay up late or wake up in ungodly hours. <laughs> all to achieve this one paper that shows that you've completed this degree. Friends, what if everything is on the line? What are you doing with your freedom? You are rich. You are strong. What are you doing with that? Is there something that you're compromising on? Boast in your weakness. Don't, give it, um, don't keep it for yourself. Confess your sins. Get it out. You have to be blessing for others. Your pockets, be generous. Your time, be generous. Let's use our strength to love one another, to build each, others up, or each other up. Because Jesus did it for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that you showed us what it means to be free. Thank you that you show us what it means to be strong. Thank you that, it, that you show us what it means to, to love. Thank you that you've given us complete freedom. I pray, Lord, that whether it's what we do or what we compromise on, or allow ourselves to compromise on, or what we give, that we would be faithful with that. I pray that you will show us, Holy Spirit, if there's something that it's not in line with you. We're not using our freedom in the way you would. Lord, thank you for showing us how much you loved us. Thank you for taking every insult, every curse, every sin, everything. Thank you that you stripped yourself of equality with the Godhead for our sakes. Thank you that we can see through Paul's life that we can run this race. Lord, I pray if there's anything that I did not speak accurately that it will fall away. And I pray that these words will not just be interesting, but that it will flow over to our hands and our feet 
and our deeds. In Jesus' name, amen.